Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hadjassad and with me is Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to all of our listeners. In case this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, Ben and I are a pair of automotive journalists. We have a couple of cool cars to talk to you about this week, um, as well as some stuff that we talked about last week. We'll continue a certain conversation, but you'll hear more of that near the end of the podcast. What's ben, old take... is new again. <laughs> exactly. Ben, why don't you take us through one of the cool cars that you've recently driven um, with a with a bow tie badge. So this this is a cool car, and it was a super secret car that I wasn't allowed to talk about last week, even <gasps> though I drove it last week. But they actually oh made gosh. I know they made me sign two documents telling two. two documents saying I would not talk about this until X date, which is which is rare. It doesn't often happen in this business that you actually have to sign something. But um, what I'm talking about is the 2019 Chevrolet Camaro, which has been redesigned across the board. But specifically, the one I drove is completely new in the sense mm-hmm. that there's never been one before, and that's the Turbo, the Camaro Turbo 1LE. Okay, so Ben, um, I understand that the version that you drove was heavily camoed up, and uh, it looks kind of—it's hard to tell exactly if they made any um, cosmetic difference or changes to the car when you drove it. But shortly after you did drive it, they released photos of what the next generation Camaro will look like, or sorry, the next model your Camaro will look like. And man, it is but ugly. They okay. put, they put a, sil- a pickup truck front end on the front of a Camaro, and that's just, that's not how you make a sports car look sleek. Okay, first of all, first of all, I saw the car in person as well. We oh, had, you did? Yeah, we had V6 and SS versions of the 2019 Camaro on a stage. We were in Las Vegas, and uh, we, we we drove the car at Las Vegas Motor Speedway on the road course. And I also saw the car at Mandalay Bay where they had a big production for all of the 2019 model changes for Chevrolet. I happen to disagree with you, Sammy. I don't think it's ugly. I think it looks different. But to my eyes, even, even those differences, I'm not seeing – you know, it surprised me because you're not the only person who said this. I've seen a lot of uh, vitriol and people venting their spleens online about how they feel about the look of the new Camaro. To my eyes, it doesn't look that different. Like what about it do you not like? What specifically do you not like? They really like puffed up the front end, especially the front end, specifically the front end. They really made it, like several it's, – it's got the new corporate grill, I think, or the corporate look. And it – just doesn't work on this car. The Camaro, I think, is a very unique product. It's like the, it's like, it's like uh, the, she- it's like the, it's like the Chevrolet Mustang. But even the Mustang, I suppose, has a little bit of like you see a little bit of the fusion or the focus in that the way that the grill shape is. I, I the Camaro is a little bit the the Camaro is a little bit different, right? It's like the no, I can't even figure it out. I, it is, it is, it's just not pretty, man. Do you think that? Um... This has anything to do with the Transformers franchise slowly winding down? Actually, that is the closest to what it looks like. Um, They took a look at the last Bumblebee concept, and then they just made that front end happen, but also while conforming to all of our safety regulations, so it looks weird. Okay, well, you know what, Sammy? I disagree with you, but I understand that you you have a very strong opinion about how the car looks, but would you like to hear about how the car drives? Yes, and and I will admit, uh, and, and I think... I've said this to many people who have listened to me talk about the Camaro. I actually really enjoy the way the Camaro drives. If I could, I would buy one, especially in that 1LE treatment. So the 1LE treatment, the the package, it's it's. I think it's something pretty special too. Uh, about a year ago, actually it might be two years ago now, when the 1LE for this generation Camaro was first released, 
I went to Spring Mountain Motorsports Park, Motorsports Ranch, sorry, which is in Nevada, outside of Vegas, and I had the chance to drive the V6 and the V8, the, the SS versions of the Camaro 1LE. So what they basically do with the 1LE package is you get the same engine and drivetrain for the most part, but everything mm-hmm. has been bumped up to give you better durability on a racetrack and better handling. So there's improved cooling for the transmission and the engine and, and everything. There's uh, The suspension is dramatically different on the, on the SS. It's my, it's uh, what they do is they take the suspension from the next level up. So the SS gets parts from the ZL1, the V6 so, gets parts from the SS, and mm-hmm. in this case for the turbo, the Camaro turbo, which is the four-cylinder version of the car, it's getting kind of a mix of parts from the SS and the V6 1LE packages, or, or sorry, the, the 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 performance packages for those cars. So when you buy this this turbocharged version of the Camaro 1LE. You get the FE3 suspension from the Camaro SS, the standard Camaro SS suspension, which comes with different shocks, tolling, stabilizer bars. You get Brembo brakes, which are four-piston at the front. You get a mechanical limited slip differential at the rear with uh, more aggressive gearing. It's 3.27 to 1. And you also get, this is one of the most important parts, the Goodyear Eagle F1 tires that you get oh, from Oh, yeah. Yeah, so... All of that those, together. I remember those. Are those good years? They were originally found on the the first time they brought the ZL1, the fifth generation. I think it it's was entirely like a, possible. It was a wicked tire. They're they're really great. Uh, it's it. They are a huge part of what makes this package so effective, and all of this stuff gets added to pretty much the standard turbo Camaro drivetrain, which is I mm-hmm. believe around 240 horsepower. Is that right, Sammy? I think it's a little bit more than that. I think it's maybe 275. 275. Let me get the actual numbers here. I think you're right. I think it's 275 horsepower and 295 pound-feet of torque. Mm -hmm. So that's – and it's a six-speed manual. I don't think you can buy an automatic 1LE. You've never been able to in the past, so I don't see why that would change that. But um, all of this on the entry-level Camaro. The the four-cylinder Camaro is the most affordable Camaro, so this is the most affordable 1LE. And it's kind of – it's an interesting idea. So I drove the car. I did mm-hmm. a few laps at Vegas. We didn't have any street time with it. These were prototypes. There were two available. I, I drove one that didn't have the roll cage installed because I wanted to feel how the car actually felt in yeah. street configuration. Because with the roll yeah. cage, it really changes stiffness for the chassis. You can't really base your impressions off of that. The car felt pretty good out there. It's uh, with the with the different with the different gearing compared to standard uh, Camaro turbos. I was able to very quickly reach the red line and stay in the power band, and uh, I've never been a fan of this particular engine in terms of how it feels. It's not particularly exciting. I mean, it gets the car moving. That's a decent amount of power. I mean, that's V8 levels of power 15 years ago. You know, now we Mm -hmm. have it in a small turbo engine. But it's not fun. In the 1LE, it felt a little more fun. The handling was good. Uh, I had no complaints about how the car cornered. I found that coming out of a corner, I was able to put power down very, very easily. There was no drama at all. A lot of that's a function of the tires. Um, Mm -hmm. It just seems like it's a well-put-together package, and that's not surprising to me given how well the 1LE has been received on the V6 and the SS. This is really interesting. Actually, I'm I'm really – I don't like that lukewarm reception. It seems like a really unnecessary product. Because um, the V6 and the V8 are, are fantastic cars from what I've been told, um, the one LE models, I mean. And while the turbo, the turbo doesn't, the the one LE package on the turbo model just doesn't do enough to to justify itself. I mean, no, if you're going to get a track version of this car I, and I, save some money doing it, why wouldn't you just get the V6? So 
I disagree with you that it doesn't do enough to justify its existence. There's, there's no pricing yet. It's not going to be very expensive. But one of the things that stood out to me was uh, the, that same two years ago when I drove the original versions of the 1LE for this generation Camaro, uh, they also had a full set of Chevrolet Performance Parts modified cars there for us to drive. And mm-hmm. I was able to drive a stock Camaro Turbo back-to-back with a Camaro Turbo that had every part from the Chevrolet Performance catalog on it. Mm-hmm. So that was all their suspension stuff, all their goodies. That car, compared to the 1LE, pales in comparison. The 1LE feels like a much more cohesive package. It's a much more focused experience behind the wheel, and it's a much better car. So I think the extra engineering that you get with the 1LE package really makes a difference and makes it quote-unquote worthwhile from that perspective. But but my issue with the 1LE is the Turbo 1LE. I don't think the customer who buys the turbocharged Camaro is interested in, in going to the track. That's an interesting idea. I mean, I might feel that same way, but at the same time, I've seen so many track cars with four-cylinder turbos and that have been chip-tuned or, or just pushed to the next level in terms of, of software and turbocharged um, tuning. I, you have to agree with me on this. Some, from what I understand, turbocharged cars seem to be very easy to to really to change up. It's almost sure. like overclock over almost. It's almost like overclocking a computer. They just crank up the boost and suddenly your car is making a way more power. You're 100% right. And a lot of that is because the fuel and boost maps that a stock turbocharged car are running have to walk that line between reliability and fuel mileage. And if you're willing Mm -hmm. to go past that line, you're looking at an easy 80 horsepower extra for the most part, especially on the two liter uh, turbocharged engine from GM. It's notorious for responding well to modifications. Oh, really? Uh, I didn't even know that. Okay. Yeah, cool. it's 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 really good for, for that particular tuning purpose. However, and you also get some really cool enthusiast-friendly like quirks with with this with with, with GM performance cars. I mean, don't you get like a no lift shift or yeah, um, it has a, it has a launch or launch control. It has a launch control system. It has the no lift shift. It doesn't have rev matching, but it does have uh-huh. a uh, a track mode. It has a multi multi mode traction control system, which you won't find on the regular Camaro Turbo. So all cool. those things are there. But I, I just kind of want to back up to what I was saying about the customer. It, when they were presenting this car to us, Chevrolet put up a list of the cars that they think they're targeting for cross-shopping. And they had cars like the um, the Ford Focus ST. They had mm-hmm. the Subaru WRX and the STI. They mm-hmm. they had the Kia Stinger, which is available with a 2-liter turbocharged engine. Uh, and they, 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 also oh, a four-door and a, and a hatchback. But okay. And they had the Civic Type R. Now, I don't think the Camaro buyer goes up against majority of those vehicles. I feel like these are all different buyers. Like you said, the Stinger is a large, full-size vehicle. It's not comparable to Camaro. The WRX is an all-wheel drive turbo car. Again, not comparable to Camaro, and I don't think that the they also had the the Ford Focus RS. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't think they're being cross shopped. But when no, I, I I think I see this. This is that tuner market car. These are cars that people buy as a platform to to tune up and and have fun with. And I think that the Camaro buyer, if you're the kind of compar- Camaro enthusiast who is an enthusiast who is someone who wants to do mm-hmm. performance stuff with their Camaro, you're buying the SS. But you can't. But what if you can't afford it? If you can't afford it, you're buying the V6. And what if you can't afford that? Then maybe you're buying the One LE. But there you go. We fixed it. Ah, yes. But I think that in fixing it, we've really, really narrowed down the number of people who are going to buy this car. Yeah. I I think they're going to sell them. I like the package. 
there's nothing wrong with it. And you can get a ton of power out of this two liter turbo if you wanted it. But I think they're going to sell in small numbers. I don't think it's going to be the same level of success as the V6 or the SS1 Elite. And I think the primary reason this car exists is because of the EcoBoost Mustang. Okay, so that's really interesting because I don't know if there's, I can't recall if there's a performance package for the EcoBoost Mustang. There is, there, there is. There. And you know what the saddest part of that is? So uh, remember when there was the, 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 you used to be able to buy a V6 with the Mustang. It was a 3.7 oh, liter. Oh, yes. Okay, it, yeah. That was a good here. motor. That was yeah. a great, it was fun to drive. You could get a performance package with it that made it even better. And then Ford was like, you know what? We want to be EcoBoost all the time. So you can either buy the 5 liter V8 or you can buy the EcoBoost and we're not selling the V6 anymore. And before they did that, they took the performance package away from it and they pushed it onto the EcoBoost. And it basically told you that, hey, if you want performance and you can't afford the GT, EcoBoost is it. So that disappointed me. Uh, because in my opinion, the EcoBoost engine in the Mustang is not engaging to drive whatsoever. It I don't, sounds terrible. I don't it, think it feels as fantastic as they as as the V6 or the V8. No. Uh, so Camaro 1LE, I think, exists to kind of slap the EcoBoost in the face. Uh, and I'm fine with that because I think competition between companies fuels a lot of great vehicle development. Uh, I'm just – I think that we're at the point where um, – we're we're getting diminishing returns, perhaps. There's one caveat to this competition because I think that the Camaro, I truly believe that the Camaro is a is a is a better vehicle than the Mustang in all in every configuration, except you can't see out of it. <laughs> and they haven't done anything to address that. No, that is a common complaint with the uh, Camaro. To be sure, I I didn't really have that issue during my very limited track time. But uh, it's it's a totally different situation when you're out on the street and there's, you know, other traffic. But, like, every configuration, the V8 is fantastic. That V6 is really good. It's, like, not a, it's not just, like, a consolation prize for not getting the V8. It is super good. And the, the Turbo 4, I've never had an issue with, despite it being down on power um, and torque compared to the EcoBoost. It just felt really good. And so I'm happy that you can, you can configure... Any one of those engines, or you can pair any one of those engines with um, a track package. You know, uh, something else really cool happened while I was in Vegas, and at Las. You win big. No, well, yes, I did. I won big in the experiential lottery of life because, in addition to the, (laughs) yeah, yeah, look that up in your Funkin' Waggles. But uh, (laughs) in addition to the one LE being available to drive, they also had the Chevrolet Corvette ZR1, the 755 horsepower supercharged uh, Corvette that has yet to be to go on sale. I, I don't think it's available yet, is it? ZL1, yes, it is. I think it's brand. It just started. The, the uh, Z, ZR1, not ZL1. ZR1, sorry. These yeah. things are badass. They look like Batmobiles. They, they are total Batmobiles, and we weren't able to drive the car, but the next best thing was we were able to be driven in the car for hot laps by a pair of amazing drivers, Tommy Milner, for one, who is the Chevrolet factory racing driver for Corvette, mm-hmm. and Tony Kanaan, a uh, Indy, Indy 500 winner and uh, open wheel champion. And uh, it, I I rode with both of them. <laughs> um, it was incredible. The, one of the most amazing things is uh, 
first of all, 755 horsepower and driving with Tommy Milner, I never heard the tires chirp once. I didn't hear what? any I didn't hear any tire squeal, no tire sounds. That's how smooth this gentleman was. Or how with... loud everything else was. Oh no no no. It was pure skill. Just the way he approached the track was amazing. And then uh second to that, I drove with Tony Kanan and I asked him to scare me. And he went wild. He he pushed the car hard. He was hitting the curbing at incredibly high speeds, like 100 mile an hour curbing hits. And uh, it was a very composed vehicle. And I spoke to both of them after. The thing that stood out the most, first of all, it's a total thrill ride. Mm-hmm. I had a great time with both drivers. And I'm extremely privileged to just be in the same car with these people whose skill level is so incredibly high. Uh, but... The thing that stood out the most to me was afterwards, I was talking to both of them about the car. And Sammy, I don't know if it's like this for you. You've also been in a situation where you've done hot laps with professional Mm -hmm. race drivers. I find that professional race drivers are very dismissive when they talk about streetcars. Has that been your experience? Yeah, it feels like they hate streetcars, actually. (laughs) And and in fact, the majority of them don't try to avoid getting into a fun, like what we would consider a fun driving streetcar. I've actually found it funnier that almost every single race car driver I've ever talked to, when they talk about what kind of car they have, they're like, oh, I have a truck. I have a, they usually have like a Ford Raptor, which I think is really funny. So, so, uh, I, I've had very similar experiences where it's just, you know, there's, they're not really, you ask them about the car you just drove in, like the streetcar. And they're very, very either dismissive or circumspect with their words to describe the vehicle. They, they don't really give a lot away. They don't really want to talk about it. Both Milner and Kanan would not stop talking about how impressive the Corvette was for them. Milner was saying that he thinks if he put the slicks that he runs on the the factory race car, that it would turn similar times on a number of tracks. Ooh. And... Both of them were impressed with how amazingly smooth the car was at power delivery and how easy it was to control 755 horsepower. The car just – they said that it was like the Z06 if everything had been improved, not just the power, but everything about the car was better. And uh, I'd asked Kanan how long he'd been driving it, and he'd actually just been driving it that day. And then he corrected, <laughs> it, he corrected himself to say, you know what? That's not true. I drove it for a magazine two months ago. It was, uh, it was an, I think, an internal corporate magazine for GM, mm-hmm. and he liked it so much that he bought one. Okay. <laughs> so uh, that, I think that says a lot about the car. The fact that these two gentlemen who are so experienced really, really had a lot to say about how impressive the car was to them. And that's so unique, at least for me, when talking to a pro. This The, ZR, the ZR1 is a very interesting it, it is it is a point it is a badge of honor for chevrolet it seems and they are really excited to show it off every chance they get in fact th- from what i understand they want to set a, a sort of lap record or lap record on the nurburgring i don't know if that's something that's interesting to you or our listeners but i think that's kind of that's that's always an interesting quest for an automaker it's always like i said a little uh, check mark on the resume of what a good um sports car or supercar killer can be or, or you know, a good demonstration of how far tire technology has come. Because personally, I feel that any historic record on the Nurburgring, it's it's just a snapshot of what tires were like at that point in time. Because modern cars, the technology is just so much better. And I think if you took a lot of those earlier cars and ran them on a modern tire, you would be surprised at the results. Um, now, this car features these Michelin Pilot Sport Cup two tires. Um, it's got better cooling. It's got more power, more downforce. George cars have that massive wing. Yes. Okay, that thing is cool. 
Um, and one of the funnier things I remember hearing is that GM or or the folks at Corvette were really personally um, affected by a Virginia International Raceway track time, uh, specifically one by the Ford GT um, at the hands of car and driver. I don't know if you remember this story, but um, the GT, the Ford GT set a lap record for production cars. It beat out the million dollar Porsche 918. Um, and then General Motors said, oh, yeah, well, hold my beer. And they went and they smashed that time um, themselves, which I think is pretty neat. Yeah, like I said, corp- competition between corporations builds better cars for everyone, I think. I hope so. Um, I do know that track cars typically become really uncomfortable cars on the road. Um, and that's probably 100% going to happen here. But I think the customer who is going to get a ZR1 or expects a ZR1 is going to be pleasantly surprised with what they get. Especially because it's a, it's a what, $120,000 car? $120,000. I'm not sure um, about the pricing on the zero. Is, that, the is that correct? Yeah. Just under 120. And it will take on like supercars and things at supercars and beyond. I actually don't think it'll be that uncomfortable on the street either because it's going to have magnetic uh, ride control. Ride control? The, yeah. So, I mean, every car I've ever driven with that has been incredibly docile on the street. That's um, that's cool. Okay. Maybe. I, well, I'm, ex- I'm eager to to test it out. What else I don't do think have? I don't think they're going to give you the key, Sammy. I think Why not? Uh, because you're too much of a loose cannon. Well, pop quiz, hotshot. Pop quiz, well, hotshot. You drove something else this week that wasn't from Chevrolet, and no. I'm curious to hear about it. I drove a Subaru, um, specifically one of Subarus. In fact, I think it is Subaru's most successful product of all time. This is the Outback, which sold its two millionth unit this week in the United States. That's pretty amazing for a that's very a, small for a very small car company. Yeah, I mean and that's have, that's a huge number. And who would have expected? You know, 1990, I think five, there was something called the Legacy Outback Wagon. It was a trim level of the Legacy sedan. It went on to become their best selling their best selling nameplate, which is pretty cool, right? Yeah, it is. It is cool. And you know, um, do you remember there was also there used the, they had the the sedan version of the Outback was available for a brief time, right? The sports activity sedan. <laughs> yeah. What do you know? Deal with that. Okay, I can tell you the deal with that. Um, there was actually a dealership group in the oh, East yes. Coast. I remember yes. this. The East Coast of the United States. I think it was the the Block family owned it. I want to say Ernie Block. I'm not sure that's the right first name, but uh, he he managed he he saw so many Outback sales. But he saw that if he added a little bit of, you know, the plastic cladding <laughs> and the, the Outback gear to the Legacy sedan, he was convinced he could sell these too. So he got together with Subaru, made his case in Japan. They let him do a pilot program with, like, mm. I think 300 cars, and he sold them in almost no time. They were just gone. And Subaru was like, okay, uh, I guess we were wrong, and here's here's the keys to the kingdom. And, and Block had a lot of um, – I believe it was Block – had a lot of sway at Subaru because mm-hmm. uh, when the company first started, they didn't have a lot of dealerships in the United States. And this family really – they owned something like every single dealership in New England. And New England yeah. is such a huge stronghold for Subaru. That's where they were able to establish their base and really build themselves in the U.S. So when when they had ideas at this dealership, they had an audience at Subaru that was willing to listen. So it's kind of fascinating that this interplay between dealers and and the mothership that you don't necessarily hear about so much these days. But it, back, back then, back in the 90s, you could just create a product. And if it sold, well, we're going to put it into production. 
It is um it is a very important car and I think it's so funny because I can't quite tell you exactly what dem- what um, what market segment the Outback really plays in. Is it a crossover? Is it an SUV? Is it a wagon? Is it just or is it some it's a blend of everything or is it not, yeah, is it a blend of everything? And I think that's the best way to, to put it. But with 2 million sales over the past uh, I guess 20 years, it doesn't really matter really. People like what they get with the Outback. And I think I see why. It's a very comfortable, spacious, and capable vehicle. It's very affordable. Um, the four-cylinder model, which is what I had, is really good on gas. And they've really improved the interior treatment of the car. So I, there's a bunch of talking points right there. Is there anything you want me to, uh, to to get into first? Well, I was just saying, that you know, I think the appeal of the Outback is it's whatever you want it to be. It, mm-hmm. it doesn't force itself into any one category. And that's a pretty important detail that I think not many other vehicles on the market kind of have that same broad appeal. I, I've owned an Outback in the past. Um, I understand why people buy it, and I think that the reason why people buy it is different for everyone. So I think I hear exactly what you're saying. Um, when you look at a crossover, many crossovers boast that they're they're SUVs that drive like cars, and other SUVs they don't drive like cars; they drive like trucks. The Outback is like neither of those things. It doesn't feel like it's trying to drive like a car. It feels like it's driving like a car, despite it being. Like eight, it has 8.6 inches of ground clearance. It, it has all-wheel drive. It has a big caboose. Um, it is a big caboose, eh? Yeah, I think that's the best way to put it. Um, it doesn't feel like a compromised or an engineered solution to a problem of how are we going to put people and all their stuff into a car. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of a weird, you know. I think when it when chameleon, <laughs> it is a chameleon, man. But and when it came out, it was it was it, it happened in an era in the mid '90s where there was nothing else like it. It was well, just Subaru was like, here's an we can inexpensively create this vehicle and yeah. see what happens. I love the story as to how this car was made. They they basically were like, wow, everyone's going nuts for SUVs. We don't have we can't make an SUV, so why don't we uh, just put some body cladding and raise this legacy wagon. And let's well, see what and, and and some and of them aren't even like, Yay! And, and some of them aren't even raced. Like yeah, there's yeah. there's, the there's a whole generation where it's like the same ride height as a regular Legacy <laughs> wagon. And but if you look at Subaru, I mean, this is a company that also created the Baja, which is a weird four door pickup that the market totally wasn't asking for either. But Subaru oh, wasn't afraid to experiment and say, you know what, we have this platform, we can easily do this. Let's just do it and see what happens. So what's more interesting, though, uh, I mean, I want to let me give you a rundown of this car. I mean, I had the the four cylinder unit It's a 2.5 liter boxer for as most engines in all Subarus are. Um, it makes 175 horsepower, and 174 pound feet of torque, which isn't a lot. But Subaru has one of the best tuned CVTs in the in the business. It the car doesn't feel like jumpy or or really aggressive, but it does get up to speed when you need it to. Um, the car has also gotten another IIHS top safety pick plus rating, which I believe is the eighth in a row that this car has gotten it. Yeah, well, Subaru is super focused on safety. <laughs> in, in fact, I mean, is, doesn't Subaru do something like two or three times the required roof crush test now for, for their, their roof strength? Oh my god, I've never heard of that. I was going to say that it seems so interesting that they're – because every year the IIHS changes their criteria to what makes a top safety pick um, – and Subaru still seem to manage to be on top. Well, that's why we got um, EyeSight, because yeah. that type of advanced safety system is becoming a requirement for the IIHS, and Subaru, I believe, wanted to maintain that streak. 
So the eyesight, which is the, the, the stereoscopic cameras that are mounted inside the car. Mm-hmm. Eyesight's good and bad because eyesight's also the reason why Americans are losing manual transmission Subarus mm-hmm. because it doesn't work with the manual transmission. Not all of the functionality is available, so they're going to go CVT only. I do have some reservations about eyesight. I've had it turn off on me in really awkward situations. Um, specifically when I was like driving right into like a low-setting sun. Like, Yeah, that's a that common really, complaint. That's a really it. specific situation i suppose but a common situation it is okay well yeah i mean uh, i don't know at least montreal here in in quebec has a lot of east-west commutes Mm -hmm. so if you're going to be driving home and the sun is setting well you want all your car's features to work right i think i've also mentioned this in the past but uh, the eyesight cameras are mounted really high up on the windshield and it's a big like system it's like a lot of hardware and as a result it pushes the rear view mirror further down the windshield, so it kind of sits. At least for me, I'm six, I'm six foot tall, and I've got the seat six feet you, tall. I know. I was I've just going to say as I, low as possible, and it feels like the windshield, the the rearview mirror is in the middle of the of the windshield. I'm just impressed that you managed to work your height into almost every podcast we ever do. You're, <laughs> yeah, I can't you, wait just for the anywhere you can. We'll be like, oh, so uh, that's about two and a half Sammys. I'm six feet tall, so like every it's you're a unit of measurement somehow in the, the standard 95th percentile Sammy human being. I can't wait for the supercut of me saying how tall I am. Um, <laughs> so that bugs me. And there's another really weird thing that I kind of pined for while I was driving this car: a front camera like parking camera or front sensor for the parking because this car has such a really it has an overhang it has a front overhang and it has a lot of ground clearance you can find yourself kind of like pushing edging over a a curb for example when parking the car so like an 8.7 inch curb i believe that's the ground clearance the car has (laughs) yes um and i really wish i knew where i was on that and if you're off-roading this vehicle i think one of those one of those cameras would be really helpful Uh, i don't know for i don't know it could be, just to, to have a better sense of where the front of the car is. All right. Like um, if you were driving blindfolded or something and you could only look at like a tiny screen and the windshield was blacked over mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you were wearing a hood. Which is typically what this is, like it's initiation for all auto journalists. <laughs> <laughs> um, the interior of the car is massively improved. I absolutely love it. My car was outfitted with a black dash and a beige tan seating setup. I loved the way it looked until I looked at the driver's seat and all of whoever previously drove it, their gene gene dye transferred onto it, and uh, it looked really gross. So That is kind of nasty. If you you get one with light feet, don't sit in it (laughs) with jeans on. I have to get dressed for the Subaru. Let me just take off my jeans and wear my sweatpants or my – Put a tarp down or something. Um, but the interior is really well outfitted. I love the stitching. I love the, the, there's really nice wood grain trim on the car. Um, I love the, the touches of all of the, the controls, you know, like the, the knobs for the HVAC controls. First of all, the, the knobs for the HVAC controls have LEDs in them that tell you what the temperature your setting is, which is a really high end feature. I think I, I think I first seen it on like an Audi and well, you now, know, you're, you're talking a lot about high-end features inside the Subaru, which is not something I, I typically associate with Subaru. No, I know. Um, dis- disclaimer, I am a Subaru owner right now. Disclaimer, and... I think I am. <laughs> I have that one that's also that is made by Subaru but has a different badge. But uh, w- would you compare the interior of the Outback to 
I think Volvo is the only company that's making a comparably sized wagon-like crossover in the cross country. Is is there any kind of like how does it stack up to the Volvo interior? I mean, in terms of space, it's very similar. I feel much more comfortable in the Outback, actually. It has more legroom, more headroom. It feels less claustrophobic, e- even though the cross-country and the V90 cross-country uh, – sorry, the V90 and the V90 cross-country are, are pretty big cars. You would compare it to I, – I, w- I wasn't even thinking V9. There's a V60 cross-country, isn't there? Oh, yeah. I haven't even been in the V60 cross-country. I've been I'm assuming in there S60 is. cross-country, I think, which is a I mean, maybe one. I'm wrong. I, that would seem to be more – I mean, price-wise, at mm-hmm. least – that's Actually, be more... let me tell you what the price of this Subaru is, and maybe you'll change your mind. A base 2.5 liter Subaru Outback <laughs> in the United States is $26,810. That is an incredible value, especially... <laughs> espe- no, you know, we're going to talk about another car just after this one, and you're going to hear its price, and you're going to have your mind blown. So, okay. so please go on. So this is actually while I was driving this car and I was really happy with it and I love the fact that there's two million of them on the uh, 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 that have been sold. A small part of me was wondering what's going to happen to the Outback when the Ascent hits the road, because the Outback is known as the halo product for the for the Subaru lineup. It's where all of the it's the big car. It's where all of its efforts really go to show off what Subaru can do. But the Ascent is going to be bigger. It's going to have be offered to to bigger families. It's going to have more technology. It's going to have an an upgraded cabin as well. It's probably going to be more expensive. Um, What's going to happen here? Are we going to lose the Outback or are we going to lose the Outback's status on the Subaru Totem Pole? I'm going to back up for just one second. There is no V60 cross country as of yet. However, to your point about the position of the Subaru uh, Outback in the world of Subaru and in the world in general, I, I think that the Ascent is in zero danger of changing the status of this you car. You really think so? I really think so because, like you pointed out, the Outback is an icon and the Ascent is an appliance. That is that is going to be how fans of the Outback are going to see the situation. Wow. I'm not saying that the Ascent, there's anything wrong with it. I haven't driven it. I haven't been inside of it. It seems to be competitive based on what we've seen so far for specs. I believe the first drives are occurring later this month. However... You can't just step in the ring with Ali because you think you can box. I mean, I think we all learned that from the first Fast and Furious movie. (laughs) And I think that the Outback is the reigning champion in the Subaru showroom and in the hearts of Subaru owners. They're not going to just because there's a – But will Subaru owners walk into a dealership say, oh, I want an Outback? And then they'll see this Ascent, which actually isn't that much more expensive. I think it's just the base model is $3,000 more expensive. And be like, oh, wow, that's way more space and just as capable. No, because the people who are buying Outbacks have already seen all of the other three-row SUVs that are out there and decided they don't want that. They want an Outback. They're buying an Outback because they want an Outback. They're not buying an Outback because they can't get something else that's bigger. And I think we saw that with the Tribeca, the B9 Tribeca, which was a total failure in terms of engaging that same crowd. Subaru wasn't even able to convince people who'd outgrown the Outback to get into the Tribeca. This is, this is what, 10 years ago? But the Tribeca was different. It was more expensive. It wasn't actually bigger on the inside um it looked big but it wasn't bigger they they've uh, they've addressed that and it was not pretty okay well those are all fair points i just personally i don't think the uh, i think the outback is in zero danger i think the outback has carved out its niche it lives in that niche subaru has carved out its own niche on the market 
And those two things together, this is the the icon of a niche brand. And I don't think introducing a mass market product like a three-row SUV that has no real heritage or resonance with existing Subaru owners is going to endanger existing Subaru but, sales. I think it gives Subaru Outback a non-mass market product when it's their best-selling car every year. What the hell is that? Hey, <laughs> but it's. But if you look, you know, I guess that's a that's a fair point. But I mean, if you're if you're the best selling model of a niche brand, that doesn't change the fact that you're in a niche brand. It's and it's not any kind of diss to Subaru to say they're a niche brand. One of the reasons why they've survived has been because they've identified their customers and they've stayed loyal to what those customers want. Subaru is one of the few brands that during the recession in 2008 2009 actually posted growth and in fact has had I think growth every quarter since then. And no no other car company can really say that. And it's because they were they're a small company that knows their customer and they were able to retain that relationship with their customer. Um let me just um what about the what about the platform, for example? I know this is a really obscure, in the weeds thing to bring up, but everything that Subaru has been making has been running on this really neat modular platform. From the 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 Impreza got it first, then it was the Crosstrack. Now we just saw the Forester get re- released with the new platform, and the Ascent is based on the same platform. Two cars haven't been upgraded to this platform, and that's the BRZ, which is not quite a Subaru, and there's the Outback that's left to go. And it just seems like we haven't heard or seen anything yet about that happening. It's it's going to happen. I mean, it's a cost thing for Subaru, and they're, they'll do it eventually. What if they make a two-row version of the Ascent and called it an Outback? <laughs> you really think that's, that's no, possible? No, I'm just going – I'm just – Or they call it the Ascent Coupe. <laughs> I'm just – I'm being creative. Um, I think that Subaru is a company that doesn't have the resources to play weird branding games. But that's what they did. That's how they made the Outback. No, no, no. The, yeah. So the Outback is is what you're talking about, where you 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 create a a, a two row version of the Ascent. They'd have to what would they shorten it inside, or would they just eliminate the the third row? I don't know. And it looks exactly the like the Ascent, and it's called the Outback. That doesn't make any sense to me. Like, <laughs> <laughs> the Ascent Outback or the Outback Ascent. No, no, no. It's not going to be like the the X6M Sport 550, whatever. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Outback is too important to Subaru to mess around with the brand. Look, uh, after driving the car for a week, I 100% agree with all 2 million previous buyers of this car. They are great purchases. So why, why don't you own one, Sammy? When are you um, going to trade your FRS? Absolutely not. It's it's it's. Just, I'm not the mark. I'm not the buyer for it. I don't not need yet. all that space. Yeah, maybe maybe not yet. Um, okay. I do wish it's it coming. had a punchier engine. I even don't like the six cylinder that much. The transmission makes up for a lot of what is lacking in the engine, but I wish it had a little bit more. Um, it would be so sweet. Outback if they XT. Had an, yeah, it would be so sweet if they had an XT. But look, they're not going to make a Crosstrek XT, which could happen more, like sooner than an Outback XT. And what? why? They just aren't. They're just not. No, but why would it happen sooner? I don't get it. What, what's because your that's essentially just the um, what's it called? The WRX. That's the it's, same it's, motor. No, in it's that the same Im- it's the Impreza. It's not the WRX. What? I'm just saying, like, there's no, there's no reason why a Crosstrek would become an XT before an Outback. I mean, they would make the model that would sell the most. I mean, we don't even get a Forester XT anymore. Yeah, that's. I can't believe we lost that too. I, I'm, I'm sure no one was buying it. That's, that's my suspicion. Um, what else can I say about this thing? 
that's it. it. It is fantastic. I really do like it. You even you even get additional features like USB ports in the rear seats. You've got like reclining rear seats. You've got features uh, in the trunk to fold those rear seats while you're at the trunk, which is pretty cool. I think uh, you just like folding things. I really love folding things. Um, I'm I'm really impressed with this car, and if I was in the market for something bigger, um, spacious, family friendly, road trip friendly. Um, and very fuel efficient and affordable. This is it. Like I don't understand why there aren't more of these on the road too. So, well, two million is not enough for you. Yeah, I suppose it could. And be you know, fun. a lot of those vehicles are still on the road. Subaru Outbacks, like they they stick around forever. People do whatever they can to keep them going. Trust me, <laughs> that's what happened with mine. <laughs> but uh, speaking of larger, family friendly uh, new vehicles, um, I I spent some time last week driving a brand new Volkswagen. And I know we talked about the Atlas the previous week, but this is something that's kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum, and that's the 2019 Volkswagen Jetta. Ooh, the new Jetta. Now, the Jetta is always an interesting car because some people just call it the Golf with a trunk. Um, is that the case so, with this car? Yes and no. So in the past, that's exactly what the Jetta was because North Americans don't really buy hatchbacks, especially in the United States. So when Volkswagen was looking for volume in the 80s or the late 70s, I think it was actually the early 80s, 82 might have been the first year for the, the Jetta here under the Jetta name. Anyway, they they took the Golf, they added a trunk, and they sold it, and everyone bought it, and it became their best-selling car, and they were so excited. And then things changed over time. The, uh, the Jetta was like their America play. They were like, we've got to do good in America. What do they like there? Sedan. Let's yes. Let's a sedan. Bam. Look, look at this. But then it kind of got taken to the extreme, kind of like what they did with the Atlas, where they were like, oh, no, what do Americans want to buy? We better make a three-row SUV. We better make a pickup truck, blah, blah, blah. And now we're, before that, we got a Jetta where they separated the, the Jetta from what it had been in the past, and they changed the platform, and they made it big and bulky and kind of cheaped it out a little bit. Uh, seven years ago when it, when it first came out, this the, the previous generation, and people were like, hmm, not so interested anymore. And Volkswagen had to go back to the drawing board a little bit. They fixed the engine situation. They had was a nasty five-cylinder engine in that car when it first came out. Whoa, Is whoa, that... whoa. I know a couple of people with that five-cylinder in, not the Jetta, in the Rabbit and the Beetle, and they were like, this thing won't die. No, I'm not talking <laughs> about longevity i'm talking about it was not a pleasant car to drive yeah it's a bit of a it's a it's a, an appliance it's but a, volkswagen they fixed that they they put in the 1.8 liter turbo mm -hmm. they put in the 1.4 liter turbo mm -hmm. they made the interior nicer it was still bigger than other compacts in its class it was bigger than the jettas that had come before it but it was doing well and the new 2019 jetta the reason I'm giving this huge preamble is because they finally moved it over to the MQB platform that pretty much every other Volkswagen in the world rides MQB on. MQB everything. Including the Golf. So, and the uh, Atlas. How and you look <laughs> at this, one, this tiny sedan and be like, oh yeah, that's related to this. So uh, aside from that though, honestly, new Jetta, pretty much old Jetta. There's not a whole bunch of difference in terms of the mission that it's, mm -hmm. that it, that it's been designed to accomplish. And it... it for for 2019, it's a tiny bit bigger in wheelbase length and width, just a little bit. It's smaller inside for yeah. legroom, but e yeah, weirdly, legroom front and rear is a little bit smaller, but everything else is bigger, shoulder, et cetera, et cetera. How did that happen? Uh, Wait, hold yeah, on. I don't know. Let me just Special kind of magic. The wheelbase got bigger, but suddenly there's less room for my feet. I don't get it either, but that's <laughs> what happened. Even the feet are um, <laughs> I don't know why they installed those humps on the floor. It yeah. seemed like it, the style humps. But uh, 
Uh, under the hood, it's still got that 1.4 liter four cylinder turbocharged engine, uh, 147 horsepower, 184 pound feet of torque. Pretty much identical to what you had the year before. Big change though, no more 1.8. It's gone. Um, that engine oh. had tw- it, well, it had 20 more horsepower, but it it, it drank a lot of gas. I really like and, that engine. Well, it's gone now. So I'm sorry, Sammy. You're gonna have to wait for the GLI with its two liter that is eventually coming later this year. Okay, I can uh, wait for that. <laughs> all right, but uh, you get a six-speed manual on the base model in the U.S. You can get the six-speed manual on every trim in Canada, but in the U.S. it's only available on the base. But the model I drove was a mid-tier SE that had an eight-speed automatic that was really good. Like, it's actually a very decent engine to drive. And not only is it good, but it's more efficient. 40 miles per gallon on the highway from the six-speed and the eight-speed, regardless of which model you buy. How did they pull this off? It's so weird that, like, just last week we were talking about the Atlas, and I think in the past we've talked about the the Tiguan, where we were really disappointed with certain um, aspects of how refined it feels. And now the Jetta comes out on the same platform and a similar transmission, um, and and a different engine, and it's suddenly like, oh, it's smooth, it's it's smart, and it knows how to change gears. Like, it's not well, it's lighter. That's, that's for sure. sure. That helps. And that helps. Um, it also doesn't have to deal with all-wheel drive, okay. so that and that's part of the lightness situation. I will say this: the Jetta, it, it's very much a comfort-oriented compact car. It's not engaging to drive. You're not going to be excited to drive it. It it's reasonably quick for the power that it has. I never felt like it was underpowered. I was able to pass on the highway, 89 miles an hour. It wasn't an issue. On the back, I was in North Carolina to drive it. There's some twisty roads there in the in the hills. It was fine. You know, there was there's nothing to complain about. It's a little noisy on the highway once you get above the speed limit. It has some unpainted part, or sorry, some some painted steel on the door panel trim that I thought was a little, I don't know, off-putting. Okay, is it around like the frame, like up top, like out of the way, or is it like right? It's it's the it's the frame directly behind. It's it's the the rear part of the door frame. And yeah. It's just kind of weird. Like normally it would be covered, and here it wasn't. Uh, the the features. So we we're talking about the, the outback price. The most expensive, I believe, Jetta you can buy is about twenty six thousand. Twenty six seven thousand. Yeah, and it starts around nineteen in the states. That's so, a pretty decent deal, I think. Maybe it is. It is. It's a. Uh, it's interesting though to think about. Like you could buy a fully loaded Jetta, or you could buy an Outback. Two <laughs> yeah, cars that are did, they're like totally different yeah. in terms of the buyer, but they're right there on that axis. Um. The other thing that I, I, I found in looking at the way the cars are, are specced, so the top tier Jetta, it gets digital cockpit now, which nice. has been borrowed. Yeah, it's been borrowed from Audi. It's a really cool 10.2 inch screen that's directly in front of the driver. It replaces the gauge cluster, and you can do all sorts of cool stuff with it. You can put a full map there if you want while you're navigating. You can arrange the gauges how you want them to, to look. It's a slick setup. You're going to be paying for it because that's the twenty six, twenty seven thousand dollar version. Uh, but if you, if you want like a pretty spruced up Jetta, it feels pretty spruced up. You get, you get real leather too at the top tier. You get ventilated seats. Uh, you get a, a Beats branded stereo system if you care about that oh, kind of thing. Oh, what happened to Fender? Fender is out. Fender oh, is out Fender. on, there's still, so Fender's still available Dr. on Dre. like the larger vehicles, like the, like the Atlas and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But Beats is kind of, they call it the youth oriented, uh, audio system. I'm not going to buy into the marketing around either Fender or Beats yeah. because the Fender system, first of all, has nothing to do with Fender. It's just a licensing agreement so they can use their name. The Beats, uh, I've never been a fan of any of their audio products. Whatever. If you want it, it's there. 
Um, I think the Jetta is most appealing when you're buying like the mid tier or the entry level. I think like for 19 grand, it's a decent deal. Um, it's it's bigger than say a Corolla or a Civic. You're gonna notice that when you park beside it, but when you drive it, it's it doesn't than a really. Civic? I think so, yeah. Wow. Uh, okay. But not not a lot. You'll you'd have to park them side by side the Civic to see is the difference. Huge now, so I mean that's a big deal. When you drive it, it doesn't feel big though. Okay. The Jetta feels quite reasonable. Um, I you know it's 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 kind of like they took the old Jetta playbook, updated all the technology, and we're like, here you go. The, the only real complaint I have, other than the you know the the, unpaint, the, the painted stuff and, and the things I mentioned earlier, is if you want active safety, you have to pay extra for it across the board. Even if you buy the high end um, version of the Jetta, I think it's called SEL Premium or SEL Plus, something like that. You still have to pay extra for the driver assist package to get things like advanced uh, active cruise control and automatic braking and lane lane departure and all that stuff. So that's that seems a little out of step with where the industry's heading. But other than that, uh, it's it's a pretty well put together package. Um, there's one thing that I thought was really cool um, that you mentioned in your written review of the of the Jetta, and that was that the tire or the wheel size options top out at 17 inches. Yeah, so uh, every car has 16-inch rims except for the top-tier car, which gets 17s. This is great. This is really because, good. Oh, man, so many cars. So I, I have a Cadillac CTSV. I have a first-generation car. It's from 2004. Mm-hmm. So this is a 400-horsepower, high-performance sedan. It has 18-inch wheels with, I believe, 245-45 tires. That is the same tire size that you would get on an Elantra GT mm-hmm. if you bought one today, which is a... 200 horsepower hatchback in the compact segment there is no reason for that car to need tires that large it's done for style the designers want something big in the wheel wells they want that look but you pay for it not only when you buy winter or summer tires for your car they're more expensive but the thin sidewall on an 18 inch tire is really going to compromise comfort yeah absolutely and you don't have that in the jetta jetta was like you know what we know that it's not a performance car we want you to be comfortable. 17-inch rims look good enough. It's not a huge issue. Here's a reasonably sized tire for your car, and I can appreciate that. And it's probably softer and maybe even quieter too, right? Oh, it's it's definitely quieter than uh, a low-profile on 18s. Know, yeah, yeah, for cool. sure. And and it's it's not going to crack the rim or the tire the first time you hit a pothole. I really give a, a lot of respect for Vol- to Volkswagen for doing that. I have one more question before we go to the next car and close. I'm with- sorry, we're out of time for questions. Oh, okay. Um, really? No, go ahead. Make 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 one make one exception here. Are there colors available for this car? There are colors. There's an orange color. There's a red color. Okay, uh, because this is a new thing that Volkswagen is is actually playing really well. Many of their cars are being uh, offered in a, in a wide variety, a big color palette, um, which is rare in this in the industry. It's not common to find cars that are available with more than two colors. That that's correct. Uh, you can get a, a brightly colored Volkswagen Jetta if that's what you want to do. I think that's cool. And I don't know if you knew this, but even in Canada, I think the Golf or the Golf R, the GTI, I can't quite remember, has almost unlimited. Like it has a bajillion options. You can get a purple one, a green one. You can get all sorts of neat colors. And this was apparently so successful that many of the Americans um, got envious of the Canadian offerings and wanted it want it as well, which is pretty cool. Um, so yes, go ahead. No, I was going to say, yeah, there was, was there one more thing that you wanted to talk about Let's, on today's podcast? Yeah, we said what was old will be new again, and this is in re- respect to the Nissan Leaf, 
we you drove the leaf um a few weeks ago and reported on it and had a couple of issues with it i drove the leaf just this week as well for a little bit more of an extended period than i did the first time i've ever driven one um my thoughts on the leaf are still the same it's a pretty um it's a reasonable upgrade it's not um game changing in the ev world but it's much more refined and and um uh what's the word i'm looking for i don't know it can find some more buyers than it used to so you're saying it's incre- it's going to increase its audience it can the range is still a significant issue i can't wait for them to come out with a better bigger better um battery in the leaf but now, the other elements of the car the way it looks the way it drives is pretty good now the thing that we talked we we couldn't agree upon was the the braking situation you had a you had a version of the car that did not feel safe to you that's how you described so so nice well i didn't say the car was dangerous i said that the braking system occasionally displayed behavior that i didn't i didn't feel safe with nissan actually reached out to sammy and i last week after listening to the podcast to let us know that they had examined the actual car that i drove because it was used in the event that sammy was attending and found that there were there was a sensor issue with the car uh, I couldn't get ProPilot Assist to work. I believe I mentioned that. Mm-hmm. And that sensor was the front speed sensor. It's the one that detects vehicles ahead. It's the one that determines the gap between traffic and the leaf itself. It was non-functional. So we were told that that's real. That's why ProPilot wouldn't engage. But I was also told that that could have had an impact on the braking system as well if it was in an emergency braking situation and couldn't figure out what input to use to determine how far away traffic was. We're going to be provided in the future with a different version of the Leaf to drive, and hopefully this one won't have the same behavior. Nissan assures us that it was a one-off thing, and that this particular model that I drove, which is, I guess, early production, was problematic. Okay, so, and I mean, I've driven, I drove it now twice, um, and this time I focused more on the e-pedal operation, and I never had this, this situation that you described. I didn't like e-pedal all that much. It takes a lot to get used to. Um, and I, actually, like I, was, I actually liked it. I mean, aside really from the did, braking eh? issue. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. <clears throat> I found it stopping the car much sooner than um, I was anticipating. Every single time. Yeah, we, well, like you said, you have to get used to it. You only had it for a day. I had it for a week, so that, that mm-hmm. gave me more time to kind of figure out in my mind. I believe that uh, Nissan told us it's 0.2 Gs yep, of braking. deceleration. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's definitely something. It, it's like any um, vehicle, you know, that has a unique or novel way of driving. You get used to it over time. It's never, oh, I I can instantly uh, unless you're Tony Kanan and you can just get in the car and do something crazy with it. For for mere mortals, you have to kind of acclimate to how the vehicle's going to drive. And I was able to do that with e-pedal. And I think that any you know, any any leaf owner would easily figure out how to work e-pedal into their life. And you know what? I even looked up some numbers on it. If you were driving at like a high, like highway speeds, like say 100 or 120 kilometers an hour, that's about 60 to what 70 miles per hour. Yeah. Uh, and you just let off the the throttle when you have e-pedal engaged, the car will come to a complete stop in about 20 seconds, which is it's not like a hard emergency stop, but it's not like a, a gentle like coasting stop. It, it's pretty gentle though. If you think I about think 20 it's, seconds, I think it's really abrupt, man. 20 seconds is quite a long time at highway speeds. I mean, it's not – this isn't like an – it's oh, not, not like you're like dropping an emergency an, stop situation. I'm you're not saying. dropping an anchor, you know. <laughs> it, it, feels, it feels really – it's really hard to get used to. Um, and there's almost no method of coasting while you have – I mean, e-pedal eliminates coasting in this car. 
Yeah, but all you have to do is turn off EPUB. That's right. And um, and it operates like a normal car once you do that. And it's just yeah. up to the driver to ch- pick and choose how they want to drive their car, whether they want this one pedal experience or not. Um, there's also something I found interesting. The car will save your settings every time you turn off and on the car. So if you had e-pedal, e-pedal and the eco mode on, when you turn off and on the car, those features, those functions will still be on because I think that's, that makes- that's actually, that's actually not true. You have to enable that. You have to enable the car, that saves it. The car I had would turn off e-pedal every single time. And I actually asked the engineer I spoke to from Nissan who, who contacted me after the incidents that I had. And he mentioned that it's a feature that you have to actually enable. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a feature you have to enable in the settings, but it's nothing that you have to go to the dealership to, to like set up or something like that. I think that's really cool because the way – if you drive the car with e-pedal and you get used to it and then you drive it without e-pedal and you forget that e-pedal is not active, like I can see that being a serious issue. So keeping those settings on is pretty important. And one, so more, it's, it's... one more thing that I wanted to bring up. You had problems with ProPilot activating. I drove the car in the rain and I had problems with ProPilot activating. And this is a – this is the way it's supposed to work according to Nissan. Well, what problems did you have? It would not turn on. It said specifically if the the windshield wipers were in not the slow intervals, but the fa- fast interval settings, it would not allow you to turn on um, ProPilot Assist, which is a bit it, puzzling to me. If, if ProPilot Assist is on and you turn the wipers on to a high setting, does it disable it? Um, actively or does it just not let you turn it on the next time you want to use it? I tested this because I didn't under I could not believe that they said that once the wipers are on ProPilot assist won't work. So I think when I used it and it was a it was a uh, like a, a dry day there wasn't any rain the car realized that the wipers were just on for like no reason or no specific reason there's and the sensors and the camera are working fine. But when I was driving the car in the rain it it turned off. It was saying it said bad weather um, I think I think I sent you a photo. It said bad weather. Propilot assist. W- was that was that real rain or was that like that, simulated that, Guns N' Roses music video style rain for the purposes of testing? It was. I have to admit, maybe a little bit of both. Wow. Yes. So that's interesting because I want a car to to work better in a situation where I'm concerned about driving in. in but you're saying you want the safety systems to be active in troubling driving. That's situations. exactly what I'm saying. Okay. Do you feel that way? Do you think that's right? No, I, I, you know what? Uh, this isn't singling Nissan out because this is a problem across the board for semi-autonomous systems. Uh, whether Nissan's disabling it when you turn on the wipers, or whether it's to say uh, uh, Chevrolet or a Cor- <clears throat> Chevrolet or Cadillac or BMW is being disabled because sensors get blocked in the snow. All these situations where I want the car to be helping me out because it's slippery, because it's rainy, because there's snow, because there's ice. This is where these systems don't work. We've talked about it intensely on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And until we get vehicle-to-infrastructure and vehicle-to-vehicle communications, until we get very, very detailed maps of every single road on the continent, this is just how it's going to be for these systems. And, I mean, it just follows up what I said earlier about eyesight not working in the sun, right? I mean, when when I'm having difficulty seeing, the cameras also have difficulty seeing. And that doesn't seem like an yeah. appropriate, like relationship between the driver and the and these systems. Well, they're, they're pre- these systems are sometimes presented as superhuman when in reality they're not. No, yeah, they're they're just like us, which is scary when you think of it. 
and and it, it would be yeah it is it is a bit scary but only because they're marketed as being a a, a safety blanket they're marketed as being an extra step that's going to be there to catch you when you fall and and that's not always the case it's it's the case in certain situations and it's not the case in others and it's that line between what one situation is and what the other one is that's so fuzzy that makes it hard for people to understand when their system's going to work so if you uh, – this is this, let me throw this out to our, our listeners out there. Let, why don't you guys let us know when you think a system should work? Should it work in perfect situations like on the, on the highway or something so that you can just deal with simple traffic with ease? Or do you think it should deal with t- tr- more troubling driving situations like in the snow or rain or fog or something like that where you personally have a more difficult time driving? Um, yeah, just uh, you can hit us up on Twitter if you wanted to to let us know how you feel about that. You can reach Sammy at uh, at Sammy underscore ha, like you're laughing. You can find me at Hunting Benjamin, or you can email me Benjamin at BenjaminHunting.com. You can find us on Facebook. Sammy, what's our Facebook page? Um, you just go to Unnamed Automotive Podcast on Facebook, and you'll find us no problem, as well as links to our previous articles and even some comments and uh, feedback from other listeners. And uh, unnamedautomotivepodcast.com takes us to, or sorry, takes you to all of our past episodes. There's a feedback form there where you can reach us. Thank you for those of you who are doing that. Mm-hmm. And you can uh, see articles linked to the vehicles that we've driven. So if Sammy or I have written a review for a publication, you can find a more in-depth discussion of that vehicle on those links. Um, additionally, you can subscribe to whatever service that you you use spotify uh itunes google play music those all uh we support all of those um platforms and uh i encourage you too if you haven't subscribed yet to do that and even leave us a review or something like that that go a long way to helping other people find the podcast and even us get better at it so, Sammy, what are you doing uh, next week, or what are you driving, or what can we look forward to on the next episode? I'm doing a little bit of catch-up next week, and uh, I'm not driving um, anything. At the end of the week, Ooh. though, I do have a trip to Croatia to drive the new A-Class, Mercedes-Benz A-Class. Well, that's going to be definitely interesting to talk about. I can't um, wait to talk I, about it. I, next week, am going to be driving the new Mazda 6 Turbo. So that will be something I think that's a long time coming, and I'm very curious to see how that vehicle feels compared to the existing car. And I, I'm also going to be talking about the Nissan Armada, which I've been driving recently. Mm-hmm. It's a huge, huge, huge full-size SUV, and I'm starting to like it a lot more than I thought I would. It's It's got some surprises in it, and I'm excited to talk about that's it. That's awesome. Um, thank you for listening, and I look forward to talking to you, Ben, next week. Aw, bye, everybody. <laughs>